morning. If you still have your Bibles handy, would you all please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And this is going to serve as our main text for this morning's message. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would Walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectively worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, 
but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. May God grant us the grace to understand the passage before us. Father, we thank thee so much for this precious book. And as we look at the second chapter of this book, we pray that the Spirit of God will illuminate our understanding and draw us closer to our blessed Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first chapter of this wonderful epistle to the Thessalonians under the theme of the model church. The model church. If you recall, the whole first chapter dealt primarily with this little local body of believers, model behavior, and testimony. They were, in fact, the model church. And Paul was delighted with them and how they managed to grow in such a short period of time. And in that chapter, he revealed three particular aspects of their growth in his daily prayers for them. Number one, their work of faith. Number two, their labor of love. And number three, their patience of hope. So in chapter one, we see the model church, but in chapter two, we see the model servant and his cause for joy. And so I've entitled this morning's message, The Model Servant. The Model Servant. Paul begins the second chapter by now focusing their attention upon himself and his co-laborers, whom you will recall were Silas and Timothy. And so we come to the first point in the message this morning, which I've subtitled, The Servant's Background. Verse 1 and verse 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Those who will truly serve God must often meet with much contention and much persecution. For this is a hostile world. It is an environment that is at enmity with God. All around us we see the effects of rebellion, the effects of the curse. Nature itself reminds us of the fall of man, the weeds and the thistles and thorns in the soil, the drought and the famines in the earth, the scorching sun in the heat of the summer, and the freezing winds in winter. We see the effects of rebellion in the character of man, sinfulness of thought, sinfulness of behavior, and of course sinfulness of deeds. Everywhere the gospel of salvation is presented, it will be met with opposition. There will be contention. There will be strife. There will be rejection. The scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-19, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Why? Why is there such vicious opposition to the gospel of salvation? Again, the scriptures give us the answer. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, we're told in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.3-4, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Not only will there be opposition from the nature of man himself, but also from the God of this world, Satan. And so any faithful servant of God will be faced with much contention, as were Paul and Silas at Philippi. We all remember that story. Back in Acts 16, 16 to 40, we read about Paul and Silas on their way to a prayer meeting in Philippi. There on the streets of Philippi, Paul and Silas met a strange damsel possessed by the spirit of divination. This damsel soon became quite a nuisance to them, publicly harassing them in the streets. So they did what any apostle of God would have done. They cast out of her the spirit of divination. This, of course, greatly angered her Jewish masters because they made a long and profitable living from her occultism. They therefore caught Paul and Silas, brought them before the magistrates, falsely charged them, had them stripped and scourged and cast into prison. Quite a discouraging situation. For most the service might have ended here. But these were no ordinary servants, Paul and Silas. They were sold out to the cause of Christ, crucified with him. And so their lives were poured out, so to speak, that he, Christ, might be glorified in them. They were model servants. Then as the story goes... Paul and Silas, in their seemingly wretched state, by the grace of God, were able to witness to the Philippian jailer and see him and his whole household one for the Lord. And had Paul and Silas not experienced much contention that day, the jailer might not have ever come to know Christ as Savior. And it was almost immediately after this incident that Paul and Silas entered Thessalonica, their wounds still smarting, yet they were bold nonetheless to present the gospel to the Thessalonians. This, I'm sure, must have caught their attention because of the suffering that Paul and Silas endured, and yet they still continued. For here were in their midst men who had something so special 
that they were prepared to die for it. And God is able to do mighty things with such servants. And so in this second chapter of Thessalonians, Paul reminds this little church about how he had to put up with much contention as they too will be called to do so. Next, the apostle reveals his inner thoughts to them, his motives, which brings us to the second part in the model servant's walk, the servant's motives, verses 3 to 6. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is our witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of God. Only God knows the heart of the servant. King David knew this better than anyone else when he said in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. God does search the heart. And the heart that is bitter or covetous or prideful or deceitful cannot be effectively used of God. It must first of all be cleansed, pure, and unblameable. Paul reminds the Thessalonians, You remember our background. You remember our shameful treatment at the hands of men. Then remember this also. We came to you with pure motives. When we exhorted you, when we pleaded with you to receive the gospel of God, it was with a pure motive. We did not do it deceitfully, or with trickery, or with evil thoughts in mind to make merchandise of you. We did not use fancy words or flattering words to win you, as you know. We spoke straightforwardly, we spoke the truth at all times, as God is our witness. We did it this way because we realize the seriousness of the trust that has been given to us. God himself has entrusted us with the gospel to present it faithfully. And so we do it to please God, not men. For if the gospel is presented properly, pleasing unto God, it will displease men, it will offend men, and there will be much opposition. We are reminded again of what Paul later wrote to the Romans in chapter 9, verse 32, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. God was Paul's witness as to the purity of his motives. God moved mightily that day in Thessalonica and saved many souls. He vindicated Paul's authority as an authentic apostle of God. 
Paul also tells them in verse 6, Neither did we seek your glory nor the glory of others. Although we were apostles of God, we did not use that as an excuse to be burdensome unto you. And the implication here being is that as an apostle, Paul could have exercised all sorts of privileges associated with that office, special treatments, so to speak. He could have allowed them to provide for him all his needs instead of providing for his own needs by laboring day and night, as he tells us in verse 9. Often we see this danger in the lives of the servants of the Lord. When they become famous or well-known, they allow their fame to become a burden to those whom they came to serve. They expect because of their position, because of their treatment, special treatment and special accolades from the Lord's people, to be treated differently. But Paul was careful to not allow his apostleship to become a burden. And a third thing that made Paul a model servant was his character, which brings us to the third point in our message this morning, the servant's character, verses 7 to 12. But we were gentle among, gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. And ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Have you ever wondered why Paul was so despised by the enemies of the cross? Why he was so vehemently attacked from outside? I believe one of the reasons was jealousy. Have you ever noticed how he loved his brethren? How he cared for them? How he sacrificed himself for them? There is often the sin of jealousy in the ranks of leadership towards one another in the same ministry, isn't there? Often one brother becomes envious of another brother because of the other brother's devotion or gifts, or because how the flock loves the other brother rather than him. Sometimes this jealousy grows so deep that a rift develops and a work can be completely destroyed. There were those who were enemies of Paul within the church as well. Yet Paul always maintained his honor. He writes in Philippians 1 verses 15 to 18, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. 
The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my wounds, or my bonds, rather, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. To Paul it mattered not what the other preacher's motives were for preaching Christ. He would rejoice in the fact that Christ was preached. But as for him, as for Paul, he would have his flock know his character. He reminds them of his gentleness and his affection for them. He had their best interest in mind when he labored among them. He uses the simile of a nurse cherishing her children. He wanted not only to impart upon them the gospel of salvation, but he also wanted to impart upon them a part of himself, his love, his affection, because they were so precious to him. He would not do anything to hurt them or to burden them. He, when he ran out financially, instead of asking them for help, which he was totally entitled to, he labored night and day so that no one could point a finger at him and say, Paul is in it for the money. They witnessed his impeccable character at work. He was for real. Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, for he says, we, in verse 10, we behaved holily, justly, and unblameably among you. Sometimes the minister of the gospel forgets himself, forgets his calling, and may behave in a manner which causes the brethren concern. He, so to speak, reveals perhaps a blemish or two in his character. Not that he should be more holy than the rest, but that is the way it is. People expect and look for something more from those who lead them. They look to them for leadership, for encouragement, for comfort, and for guidance. God, too, places some very high requirements or standards upon his leaders whether they be elders, teachers, or deacons. He has very high standards, standards that are often ignored because the attitude is no one can ever measure up to them anyways. But Paul did. Paul measured up because he poured himself out for Christ. A second analogy that Paul uses is as a father towards his children. Verse 11. He reminds them how they first handedly witnessed his fatherly approach to them when he exhorted them or encouraged them, when he comforted them, when he charged them to walk worthy of God. Since he had led many of them to the Lord, they were his children and therefore he felt more intimately responsible for their spiritual well-being. He was like a father to them. All of us here this morning, I'm sure, can look back in our Christian journey and say, yes, 
we too had someone whom we looked up to as a father in the spiritual sense. Someone who fed us the word of God. Someone who led us and who protected us from certain spiritual dangers. We must confess, if we are honest, that these spiritual fathers held our respect, our affections, and our prayers. They were also a comfort to us in difficult times because we knew that we could get good godly counsel from them and that they kept us in their prayers also. It was a good feeling to know that we were in good hands or in good company. And Paul, when he wrote these words to the church at Thessalonica, wanted to remind these new believers of just how much he cared for them. He was like their father to them, and consequently, by example, he reflected our Heavenly Father's care to them. And because he was like a father to this flock, he was also concerned about their spiritual walk with the Lord. What Christian father wouldn't be? Now that they had entered into the kingdom of God, they were to demonstrate it by their walk. Though they would face yet much more affliction and persecution, they were to nonetheless continue to be followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. They were to hold fast to their newfound faith, regardless of the cost. For, reminds them Paul in verse 13, Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That is a most significant verse. They received Paul's preaching not as some man's version of God and what God is all about, but they received Paul's preaching as it really was, the word of God itself. It was received as though God himself spoke these words. They were in truth, the truth of God. And oh, how this should speak to us this morning. There are only two positions which a preacher of God can take when he preaches the word of God. Either it is the word of God, or it is not the word of God. If it is the word of God, then every bit of it is truth, error-free, trustworthy, and living, able to do what it claims to do. If it is not the word of God, then the preacher will have full liberty to improve upon it, to correct it, and to dismiss the parts which he finds distasteful. In the end, those who hear him will have a no better estimation of it than he does. Yes, these new believers in Thessalonica received what Paul was saying as the word of God. And God honored both. God honored Paul's ministry and brought in a harvest. And God honored the Thessalonians by saving their souls and adding them to his church. Finally, we come to the end of this chapter, which has been dealing with 
Paul as the model servant. We get some insight into Paul's reward for doing all of this. And so I've entitled the final point in our message, The Servant's Reward. The Servant's Reward, verses 17 to 20. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. There is a reward for all faithful servants of God. And it is not always realized in this lifetime. Sometimes, by God's grace, we may be blessed to enjoy the fruits of our labor for Him here. It may be in the form of temporal blessings, such as a good place to live, food enough, fine friends, a nice place to worship, a good position in life and job, and even good health. But in other cases, some of these temporal blessings may never be realized on this side of heaven. And the reason may be that God has something much more to give on the other side. These temporal blessings might in fact interfere with the other more precious spiritual blessings. So God withholds them. Paul experienced very few temporal blessings, as we know. But his great windfall someday would be spiritual. And in particular here, he mentions a crown of rejoicing. Paul knew full well that all believers would someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where their service and time for the Lord would be judged. All their works will be tried and burned by fire, say the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul was looking for his rewards in heaven. God would be the judge of his faithful service. After all, it is only fitting that the one who sees the heart and the mind and sees the end from the beginning be the one who declares the just reward. Thus, Paul was able to say with certainty as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in verse 19 that this little body of believers was his joy and his crown of rejoicing. This, I believe, is the most precious of all rewards. The crown of rejoicing symbolizes soul winning. The greatest work that any believer is privileged to do on the face of this earth is to bring others to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Often the soul winner does not see the end results of his or her work. But whether the soul winner has been privileged to plant the seed, or water the seed, or harvest the seed, the Almighty Righteous Judge of Heaven will reward accordingly the crown of rejoicing, the soul winner's crown. And as I look among this mature body of believers, I can say with certainty that many of you too, when you stand before the Lord, will someday receive a crown of rejoicing. Think back to the many souls that you have been privileged to witness to in your lifetime. And perhaps even many of you have had the joy of seeing some of these souls trusting the Lord because of your testimony. They will stand with you someday at God's throne of judgment as your glory and your joy. How we must all thank the Lord for those faithful servants whom he sent into our own lives to tell us about his Son. Yet, there must also be a caution here as well. Verse 18. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. There is always one who will stand in the way of men being saved. He is the one who is the epitome of wickedness and deceit. This one is the most powerful of all created beings, and his realm of influence is as wide as the universe. His power is only second to the Almighty God. He cares not whom he destroys. He cares not whom he deceives. He cares not the methods he uses, and he cares not what men may say about him. He cares for only one thing, and that is to steal your soul, our souls. He has many names in Scripture. Sometimes he is called the great adversary, 1 Peter 5.8, because he opposes those who labor for God. Sometimes he is called the wicked one because of his evil deeds and heinous crimes against mankind, Matthew 13:19. Other times he is known as the father of all lies and the great deceiver because of his guile and deception, John 8:44 and Revelation 20:10. Still other times he is known as the god of this world and the prince of this world because of his awesome power and a myriad of principalities and powers under his command, 2 Corinthians 4.4 and Ephesians 2.2. This one, who is best known as Satan or the devil, is the angel of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9.11. His whole purpose of existence now since his fall from grace eons ago, is to deceive, to hinder, to destroy those for whom the Son of the living God came to save. This is the one who hindered Paul from coming to see the Thessalonian Christians in verse 18. Satan is a very real being. 
There are those today who have had their minds confused through modern philosophy, psychology, and evolution, and poo-hoo this doctrine. The devil is a real being, evident in every act of supernatural evil. Even in the Christian church today, many forget the reality of the devil. They get carried away with their own importance and fall prey to the devil's deception and doctrines of devils. Even Christians are led astray by this liar, this devil. And so, he was the one who hindered Paul from coming in verse 18. He created for Paul much of the opposition and persecution whenever Paul preached, and sometimes Paul was hindered. But God is always able to use these hindrances to his own glory. What Satan intends for our ill, God in his sovereignty overrules to our good and to his glory. Perhaps there have been times that Satan has hindered you. Perhaps there have been times when you have almost lost hope of things ever getting better, and you could scarcely cope. Remember, God can overrule. For the scriptures say we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Philippians 4, verse 13, Yes, Satan hindered Paul, but for a season. You see, dearly beloved, though Satan is able to hinder and to hurt, it is always only for a season in God's sovereign will. Satan is not allowed to prevent the Lord's people from finally fulfilling God's will in them. And when he hinders, it is only by God's permissive will. How beautifully the, gen uh, the apostle ends this chapter. He once again brings to their attention the certainty of the Lord's return one day. And if circumstances be such that he cannot see them again here on earth, there will be that great meeting in heaven, that great time of rejoicing, when they all stand together in his glorious presence. And notice how the apostle is always careful to draw their thoughts always to the Lord's return at the end of each chapter. Chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 18. Chapter 5, verse 23. I see that our time is up, but before I step down, you know that I must ask you this question. Are you a Christian this morning, joyfully waiting for the Lord's return also? If so, that's good. But if you just happen to not be sure about your status before the Lord this morning, then why not be certain? Turn to Him and trust Him even now. He loves you just as much this morning as He did when those cruel Roman hands nailed Him to that cross on Calvary some 2,000 years ago. His plea will still be the same for you this morning as it was then. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thus did he pray, even while his lifeblood flowed fast away, praying for sinners while in such woe. No one but Jesus ever loved so.
Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this beautiful letter to the church at Thessalonica. We thank thee for Paul's faithful service to thee. For had he not been poured out for the cause of Christ, he would not have written those beautiful letters that we have today bound together in a book called Thy Holy Bible. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray. If the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to draw us together round his table next, next Lord's Day. For we ask it always in his name and for his glory. Amen.